Org. The views and opinions of the guest and host you hear are not necessarily those of the staff and management of Radio One, its sponsors or advertisers. Ah, mon Afrique, réveille-toi. Il est midi. Tu dors encore. Réveille-toi, n'écoute pas Babylone, il t'a fourni les armes pour tuer ton peuple, n'écoute pas Afrique, Afrique Oyamba, toi cheveux crepus, bah toi maïel et bosimba ni babigé. Oya bilanga mo zimbani ba Congo Zimbani maboko mouna le kate O Afrika malobate Monsalande Mwindo yangolo Afrika Mbali ya mingao Afrika Hatona mosolo Afrika Welcome to Congo Live this is the first edition of our show, Congo Live. Um, I am here with my co-host, Patricia Lokwa. Hello, hello, hello. Are you ready to take this to the new height? <laughs> of course, of course. And I hope everybody's having a great Saturday today. And uh, we're going to learn a lot about the Congo. And we're going to let Kambali uh, give us a little bit of an introduction of what the show is going to be about. I mean, pretty much we want to bring the Congo to your home every Saturday. You know, you've probably heard of the name Congo it's not a musical instrument, but it's a country in the heart of Africa. So every Saturday, we'll be talking a bit of news about the Congo, about the African continent, what is actually happening there, how you could actually uh, travel to the Congo. I'm hoping that you could do that too also in your lifetime and learn about vibrant movement, uh, what young people are doing. But most importantly, learn more about the culture, the rich culture that exists in the heart of Africa. And for our show today, we have a special guest by the name of Dr. Yvonne Sion, who's going to be joining us a little bit later to talk about her experience in the Congo in the 1960s. And uh, prior to that, we're going to try to get the guest to get to know us a little bit better. And we're going to... You want to go? Oh, definitely. Always. Always. But before we get to... Uh Getting to know more. One thing is on my mind right now is uh, what's happening here in Baltimore. Uh, Freddie Gray, uh, God bless his soul, he has um, died unfor- unfortunately. Um, and this is an issue that's very important to me, uh, to us, uh, to the lives of uh, blacks, of people of color in this country, the United States. Um, for some time now, um, on the news now, most people are hearing about what is actually happening. Freddie Gray was uh, arrested uh, by the police in Baltimore and uh, while he was under the police custody uh, in a police vehicle he suffered injuries which took his life uh, which uh, is something similar to what has happened in many places um, what's coming in my mind right now is what's going on in Ferguson uh, I was there uh, from uh, September till March, working with some of the youth leaders of Hands Up United. And um, the reason I went down there was to help our young brothers and sisters as they organized to stop police brutality and to determine their own affairs in Ferguson. And for those of you who are joining us from outside of the United States right now, 
Uh, if you want to also know about what was happening in Ferguson, uh, Mike Brown was a young man who was uh, killed by the police um, unharmed and his body laid on the in the streets for over four hours which anger many people and we continuing to see the devaluation of black lives and we hope uh, as we get our listeners uh, to know these issues that they can take actions uh, to lift up these stories and demand more police accountability in the communities and uh, I think uh, it's also important to raise awareness on the correlation between what's happening in the USA in connection to what's happening in Africa and in Congo in general. Um, not too long ago in January, there were protests that also happened in the Congo. But the reality that the Congolese have in comparison to what the African-Americans may face here in America is a little bit different. Um, we all have fundamental changes that we want. We all want our rights to be respected, but ultimately in the Congo, they don't have the luxury of being able to protest in the streets and they don't have the luxury of being able to to basically have a voice because um, any opportunity or chance that students try to get out on the streets or individuals try to get on the streets, they're murdered. Uh, not too long ago, um, Kamale, maybe you can let us know of the 400 or more grave site that they found by the UN and uh, they were discussing uh, where do these bodies come from? The government of Congo is saying that they were um, fetuses of children and so forth. And right now there's actually investigation going on to try to figure out uh, who are these people that they found in these mass grave sites. And uh, we believe in the Congolese community believe that a lot of it has it is most likely the protesters in January who came out and um Kambali, you can maybe tell us what was going on in January and what caused those protests. And that's why you listen to Congo Live, to be able <laughs> to get the news right straight from the African continent and how young people are determining their affairs and they are taking control and they're saying, we want to have a say in the decision-making process. Congo, a beautiful country right in the heart of Africa, has known turmoil for quite a while now. Since 1996, uh, over 6 million people have died. As you hear this, you probably did not grasp what I just shared with you. Since 1996, over 6 million Congolese have lost their lives in the battle for control of natural resources. So why do you think it's, not, it's something we don't hear about in the news here in the States? Why is it that we're not seeing it on CNN? And why is it that, that people are not marching in the streets when there's 6 million lives that have been lost, whereas in the Holocaust... That's something in Europe, if we were to hear something like that, everybody would be out on the streets. Yes, and I used to be a little bit more cynical in saying that uh, people don't care about Africa. But that has not been my experience. So I can no longer say that it's people, people do not care about Africa. What I've noticed in my uh, travels and meeting people in this uh, country, or even outside of the United States, is that people do not know what's going on. And whenever we are going to the communities and speaking to them, directly about what's going on in the Congo, the, over, the number one question I hear is, how can I help you, Kambale? So whenever I hear that, I cannot say that anymore. So the question I is, why they don't know? Because probably we didn't have Congo Live last, last year. Well, me being a Congolese, um, I know about a year ago, I always felt that I knew the issues that were going on in the Congo. I thought I knew everything. 
And uh, I started volunteering at an organization called Friends of the Congo. And from there, I really started to see the reality of what was happening in the country. Because I always felt, you know, as long as I listened to the music, I understood the culture and ate the food. Therefore, I'm Congolese and I know the issues that are going on. But the reality is there's more to the story. There's more complex issues happening around the realities of the Congo and the deaths. And um, I don't know if Kambali had mentioned that uh, Congo is actually the number one rape capital of the world. Actually, I did not mention that. Oh, you didn't mention uh, it's that. A, you it's a challenge, that. right? Uh, mm -hmm. To come from one of the uh, most, the richest country in the world, uh, most vibrant country, but you also have uh, this um, horror that's taking place that we, we as Congolese have to own up that we also have suffering there. And that goes back to the issue of the mass grave that we were just discussing. No, two weeks, two to three weeks ago, uh, people in the neighborhood in Kinshasa, which is the capital city of Congo, uh, start smelling a an odor a coming from order. Mm -hmm. And as they smelled it, they went to where the smell was coming from and they discovered bodies. There was actually, after uh, investigation of the area by some of the UN contacts and Human Rights Watch, about 400 dead bodies. And in what exactly did the Congolese government do about that? And can they it follow is, up with it? Is, it is uh, kind of interesting, their, their reaction. No? They first, the initial response was that these bodies were uh, fetuses uh, from different hospitals in the capital city and also that these bodies were of those, uh, the bodies that they, they were not claimed in the morgue in some of the mm -hmm. hospitals there. Mm -hmm. But uh, questions that have arose, of course, you know, when Human Rights Watch, United Nations, uh, um, investigators and locals are all saying we believe these dead bodies are protesters uh, who were killed in January and what happened in January this year is that young people from January 19th to the 21st of this year went out in the street to demand accountability from the Congolese government so that they do not change uh, they do not add a law into our Constitution that will allow the president of the Congo to rule again so with that um, they went out in the street, they, as you shared, they were met with live bullets and uh, scores died. The numbers from Human Rights Watch was 42 that they were able to count. The government said there were only 12. But we have people on the ground who actually uh, investigated the situation who saw clearly that the military was going to hospitals and actually stealing dead bodies. I think the what I want to try to also understand and maybe you can clarify for me given that you're the expert um is why is it when we hear issues of situations happening maybe in iraq or we hear things that are going on in uh, nigeria with the boko Haram, that you'll see u.s involvement but then when it comes to the congo you don't see the U.S. government getting involved with these issues. I couldn't imagine living in Florida right now and 400 people have died and they find a mass grave and nothing is being done. Nevertheless, even on an international level, if we're talking about countries like France and Germany and so forth. So why is it that the U.S. government feels the need to not speak out on these issues or even mention it on CNN for the people you know who may be interested on these issues? Make no mistake about it. The United States government is very involved in the Congo. Um, their inaction is actually a form of action. Um, the, what we do want is not for the United States government to be engaged. Okay, be okay. What we want is for them to disengage because their engagement in the Congo historically has been negative. 
in a uh, hundred years ago uh, during uh, the Berlin Conference, the United States was the first country to recognize the Congo as the personal property of Leopold II. In 1960, when Congolese organized and elected their own leader, Patrice Lumumba, who became the Prime Minister of the Congo, guess what happened? He, he was, was assassinated. assassinated with the support yeah. of the CIA and Western uh, powers, specifically you know, Belgium. Um, then in the wars that started in 1996, we also saw U.S. engagement always on the negative side. What we actually trying to do is not to ask for the United States government to engage. We are asking the American people to hold the government accountable for what they are doing abroad so that they don't support dictators. Obama. So what you're basically saying is what was happening during the apartheid in South Africa where they wanted changes within their own country and then you had the whole world supporting them versus getting involved in their issues. Exactly. Okay. Be allies to Congolese. Support them. We've done that before and that's the beauty of this show. We're going to have a wonderful guest who, uh, when she was 22, she went to the Congo. And that's the question for the listeners. What did you do when you were 22? And for those of you who are not 22 yet, when will you go to the motherland, to the heart of Africa, to hear about the change? She went there during the independence movement. That's what we are going to be discussing with her today as uh, we talk about engagement of others in the affairs of the Congo today. Okay.
And that was Joseph Cabasele singing Independence Cha Cha. Cabasele is one of the most, that was one of his most memorable songs. And uh, one of a song that we consider it as a Pan-African hit in uh, Africa in general. And it basically just... Um, talks about the Congolese independence and what was happening during that time. And uh, maybe you can give us a little bit of context. Was that during the 1960s? Did this come out? Independence, cha-cha, <laughs> The listeners do not even know this. I was dancing uh, while the song was actually going on. Yes, this was a memorable moment on the African continent where young people in many African countries uh, from 58 to the 60s were fighting for independence. And this song was written right before uh, during the, um, the, movement. the movement, especially the discussion with the Congolese uh, political leaders, with the Belgians as they were fighting to gain independence. And that was an anthem. Independence um, But I see we have a caller on the line. Uh, we want to get some of his or uh, her thought on the line. Uh, yes, hello. And I believe this is actually our guest, Yvonne Sion who uh, is going to give us a little bit of feedback of her experience in the 1960s, how she met Lumumba, and so forth. <laughs> well, okay, well, I'm going to continue, and we're trying to get her on the phone right now. We're having a little bit of difficulty. She can't hear us. But um, just to give you guys a little bit of uh, feedback on Dr. Sion. She is an amazing woman. She's actually worked with Kambali, I would say, before in the past, and you've met her. I haven't had the opportunity to meet her. I've just uh, heard great things about her, and maybe Kambali can give us a little bit of a bio of her. How did you meet her? Uh, I met her through the movement, uh, mainly as a young Congolese trying to learn about uh, what happened in the past. I was uh, fortunate enough to speak with her to find out, you know, what to, uh, what actually motiv motivated her to go to the Congo and she shared a lot of wisdom and I really would love uh, for her to actually uh, speak to us more than actually me sharing about who she is because I know she has so much to share with our listener. Dr. Thanks. Sion, are you live with us now? I think so. Can you hear me? Oh, perfect. Oh, hi. Perfect. Hi. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much show. for calling in. I'm enjoying the show myself. Oh, thank you. So we'll read a, a little bit of your bio, and thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Sion, born in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, is a pioneer in African-American studies, curriculum development, and the first African-American woman to be ordained as a minister in the Unitarian Church. She holds a master's degree in divinity and a PhD in African-American studies. Uh, Sion had a degree for Allegheny uh, College in 1959, a year later, and a degree at Woodrow Wilson Fellow. In the summer of 1960, Dr. Sion met Patrice Lumumba, then Prime Minister of the newly independent Congo, on his only visit to the United States. And that's what uh, we wanted to discuss with you today, Dr. Sion. Yes, that was quite a story. And it's one of those situations where uh, you happen to be in the right place at the, at the right time, and there's something called serendipity. And that was a serendipitous moment. Uh, I had been very interested in Africa and the independence of Africa because as a young uh, woman just graduating from college, uh, I felt that uh, in order for African Americans to have civil rights in America, that uh, we would have to, uh, that we would need to see 
independence in from colonialism in the African nations. So I saw a link between those two. And I also felt that um, all the things I had been learning about Africa in the United States were suspect. Uh, if, if Africa was so bad, why is it that other people were going over there and living and, and African Americans were being discouraged from doing that? I said, no, something is wrong here. I want to see for myself. And so I had that uh, idea that I wanted one day to work in Africa, and I've had that since I graduated from college. And I had learned French mm. uh, because I knew that French was the other important language on the continent. Uh, so I, I studied French in school, and I was not fluent in it, but I could speak it and understand it very well. And that was how, um, when Lumumba came to the United States, all my African friends and all my uh, family and everyone was encouraging me. We, you know, they're having a big uh, reception for him at the Mayflower Hotel, and you need to be there. And so I was encouraged to go to the reception. But and, and how was it meeting Lumumba? Like, what was his personality like? Or, you know, how, how did it feel being in his presence? I think for me, it's just an, it's, it's an inspiration to actually speak to somebody who's been directly connected to Lumumba. So to hear you say this, you know, it's just, it's inspiring for me. So I, I just want to get a sense of who he was as a person, because you tend to read a lot about him and you read yes. quotes, but yes. you don't necessarily get to understand his character through the quotes. Well, when I saw him first at the reception, he was in the process of talking to reporters, and so I didn't actually meet him that night. Okay. But I did see one of his uh, aides, and we started talking about the Congo and the shock of how it had gotten independence so suddenly, uh, and what you know what had been going on there before that led to independence. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, the person said to me, "Well, Mr. Lumumba is trying to get people, Americans, to go over and take the place of the Belgians who are leaving. So, can I tell him when I'll introduce you to him tomorrow at the Blair House? But may I tell him that you're interested in going?" Well, I said, "Well, I'll have to think about that." And I, I, t- <laughs> I went home and told my mother and and I, my parents both went with me to the Blair House the next morning uh, because I knew that if I had to make that. Uh, if I, if I was thinking of going to the Congo, I wanted them to be part of that, mm-hmm. of that moment. And uh, this is what impressed me about him. He, uh, I waited for a while while he uh, was getting packed and ready to, uh, to leave the Blair House. He, was, he told me when he came in, he said, I'm going to Canada today. I'll be back in two days. I understand that you are thinking of going to the Congo. I will look for you on the plane on Tuesday. <laughs> this was a Saturday morning. Oh, wow. So, so he was serious. Oh, he was serious, and he was very much, uh, how can I say this, he, he was a person who wanted to see the best for his country. He wanted to see the independence of the Congo mean something for the people of the Congo. That was what impressed me as I met mm. him. Uh, the other thing that impressed me, I was impressed that he uh, was in the United States first, and he was seeking help from the U.S. first, and I thought that gave the lie to the rumors that he was... Um, uh, favoring the communists, uh, and and another thing that gave the lie to that, when I was on the way in, uh, a Russian person pushed, from someone from the Russian embassy, Mm -hmm. pushed past me to go ring the bell, and they were told that he was busy Mm. and could not see anyone because he was getting ready to leave. Well, I thought that might be the same answer for me, but when I got to the door, they said, oh, yes, we're expecting you, and come right in. So my, my parents and I were escorted in, and we waited for him uh, until he came down. I was impressed that he was um, 
a man of action and a man of purpose. And so when he came down, he, he uh, listened as someone told him, you know, who I was and what, what, I, what was going on. And he came in and he said, I understand you want to go to the Congo. Uh, and I, as I told you, he, uh, uh, was ex- he said, basically, we need people. Uh, I'll look for you on the plane on Tuesday. Uh, he, was, he was quick to make a decision. Uh, he was thoughtful. He was very thoughtful um, because he didn't just say that out of thin air. He took time to listen uh, before he made that statement. He listened to the people around him first. So I was impressed by him as someone who was a listener and a leader uh, and a decisive leader. He could make a decision easily. Now, this becomes important when, when I went to the Congo uh, I met a lot of people there, and I've had to have dealings from time to time with people in the government. But people had been, they had been so uh, subdued, if you will, under, under colonialism that they weren't ready to make decisions. They, did, they, weren't, they would wait for someone uh, who had been in the, someone from a Belgian, so to speak. So, uh, to, Dr. Sion, before we get to um, what happened in the Congo, I'm very interested in your decision to go to the Congo. It reminds me a little bit of uh, Maria Fearing, who went to the Congo in the late 1800s to support uh, our uh, elder brother, William Shepard, who was the first African-American Presbyterian missionary to the Congo. And that experience was similar. William Shepard met Maria Fearing in Talladega in Alabama, Mm -hmm. told her, come to the Congo to help me, and she left everything behind, sold her house, and moved to the Congo. You know, it takes a particular type of mindset to be able uh, to hear a call for, from our African brothers and sisters uh, saying, we need your help, come home, and yeah, to leave everything and do so. What, what moved you at the time? You no, know, you're 22-year-old, you hear about the Congo, and you decide to go to the Congo. What made you make that decision? Well, I think there were a couple of things. I had always felt like I wanted to make a difference in the world, and I felt like uh, at that time the thing that would make a difference was uh, being part of independence in Africa, being part of the winds of change, they were calling it then, where all the African nations, many of the African nations were on the path to becoming independent, and if they weren't on that path, they were certainly fighting to become independent. And as I said, I felt that that was tied to my ability to be human in the world, my ability to have a place in the world, uh, let's say a a place in America, a place in in the world that I had grown up in, uh, was tied to the the independence of Africa, that I couldn't do that unless Africans were free to uh, determine their own own destinies on the Congo, on the continent. And so that was what uh, gave me impetus to feel it. especially when uh, the prime minister said he was looking for people to come in and be part of, of, of the change that was coming uh, and, to be, and to be taking the place of the, because we had expertise, expertise as African Americans, to be able to take the place of uh, the colonial um, figures and, and, uh, and do it as a, as a servant instead of a, instead of, um, Master, <laughs> I think I think for me the the question I have is as I I listen to you is why were African Americans or Americans or just the world in general more inclined to work together with Africans during the 1960s and now we see there's a such a disconnect where 
you don't see where you have the Black Lives Matter. You don't see everybody looking at their situations and saying, hey, you know what? Our struggle is the same as the African struggle. And we are all blacks and we all need to find ways where we come together and we all unite so that we can have a more impactful change. Because at the end of the day, change works in numbers. You know, we can sit and we can talk. But if we don't have those numbers and we don't have people uniting and working together, we're pretty much, you know, we're just talking, but we're not really getting results. So why? what was happening in the 1960s that created that possibility that maybe we need to start looking into now so that we can find ways in this new generation to start working together and create a movement where the Africans and the Africans, Americans or people across the world can really start creating change in these areas. I think for the African American population, it was a case of we were at a limit of point of a point of pushing for our own uh, self actualization uh, because of the repressions uh, that had come before us, and there were. A, but I think, uh, like now, there were a lot of. This was not the norm. This was not mm-hmm. everybody. We lived in Washington D.C., and that was the seat of government. We could see. Uh, we could see the change that was happening. We could see Africans coming in as diplomats and uh, uh, making a mark. We saw Kaysen uh, Saki at that point, who was the president of the General Assembly of the United Nations, who would come onto the floor of the U.N. with his uh, African robes on, with his kente stole on. And um, I, that made a tremendous impression on me because it was a, it was a visible reminder that Africans... Africa had a history. Africans had been kings and chiefs and world leaders in another era. And uh, although we had been told differently uh, in terms of what we were taught in school, we knew uh, the evidence was there that that, uh, that Africa... And I had gone to school, by the way, with some African students uh, who were all fighting for independence. And so um, we... I think, I think another part of it, another uh, key to that was that uh, in America, uh, students had not been active in terms of uh, being on the world stage or being concerned about world affairs, not, not at home and not abroad. But um, that was a time when, when there was beginning to be a change in that respect. We were beginning to uh, want to have control over our own lives, our own curricula. What, what is the curriculum going to be? What courses are we going to teach? And so it, it played out in terms of the Africans' Uh, African Studies movement as well. Um, And uh, what what we want to do is we want to play a song that was out during the 1960s and you can get a little bit more uh, into after this song about what are ways and things that we can do now where we can all start working together and educating one another and how, how can we Africans find ways to communicate to Americans so that they can understand our struggle. But first I want to play Franco um, Macchiada (laughs) Macchiadi, <laughs> and it's the song. The name of the song is Insonia. Okay, and you may know this song, so that's why we th- we thought you know you were probably in Congo during this time. I was. I was. <laughs> <laughs> Mon 
listening to Kinsonia by Franco Luambo Makiadi, uh, who was a Congolese uh, a musician, a major figure in Congolese music. He was uh, the lead singer and guitar player for a Congolese group called OK Jazz, which has influenced a lot of songs uh, worldwide. Just want to remind our listeners that you can call in now. Uh, the phone number to call is 410-481-1010, 410-481-1010. Four eight one one zero one zero. We would like for you to join this conversation we have with Dr. Ivan Sian, uh, who met Lumumba in the 1960s, left everything behind, and went back to Congo uh, to work on a very major project. And I hope, uh, Dr. Sian, uh, you can share with us more about what you worked on. And uh, before even we jump into that, you know, listening to this song, what memories come back to you, your head? Well, unfortunately, I got uh, I did not hear the song as it was playing. So, uh, but I know that uh, when I was listening to "Ende Pendance," yeah. I remembered uh, the OK Jazz Band playing in the middle of the city uh, uh, in public concerts and uh, dancing to the music of OK Jazz uh, during that time. Um, and what is something uh, you could say? about the Congolese people and their personalities just going out in the streets. I know one thing that I always uh, enjoyed most about the Congo is every corner you go to, there's music being played, people are alive, they're, they're constantly smiling despite the war and despite the struggle. It just seems that there's a spirit within them that just always keeps them alive and hopeful to a better tomorrow. And what, what was your experience for the Congolese people during this period? A very similar experience. I felt that the Congolese people were very much... 
were open to me. They received me with open arms. They uh, shared with me. They uh, treated me as as a sister, uh, and um, I felt as though I, I made a difference in be- by being there. Made a difference. And I'm sure they invited you in and fed you some of uh, their good, delicious food that they have. We have uh, the pondus, and we have the the yes. chicken, and they're incredible cooks. I know that for sure. Have you taken any of these recipes with you and still cook them till today, or? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not too good a cook, but I do remember eating kwanga um, and the and the green dish, green dishes, and they remind me very much of some of the things that we have in the African American community. Oh, greens, okay. Greens and smothered chicken. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're definitely going to have to invite you over so you can try some kwanga and bring you back to those days. Wonderful. <laughs> and um, the question that I had for you um, before we close off is, what is something that you can share with students now who may be in universities and who just people in general, when you're looking at what's happening in the Baltimore area, what are ways where people can get involved in knowing more about Africa and knowing about the Congo? And maybe you can offer ways where you got involved in the 1960s that led you to meet um, Lumumba back then. If somebody to say, today says, hey, you know what, I'm interested in the issues going on in Africa or in the Congo. I'm going to school right now. I'm an activist. What can I do to get involved? What is something you can suggest to these young students? One of the things that made a tremendous difference for me was that I uh, got to know the African students who were in school with me mm. and the ones who were in school um, and the ones who were just uh, studying in the area. Anytime I had an opportunity to get to know an African, I would talk, I would get, ask questions and learn as much as I could learn from them. I think that's the, that was a way to get interested. It was a way to find out things. And it was a, a way to... Um, making me understand that my struggle and their struggle was the same as one struggle uh, in terms of in uhuru, uhuru for everyone. Mm-hmm. So we have one caller on the line, Desantere. I hope I'm saying your name right. Yes, hello? Yes, sir. My name is Desantere. That's how I go by. Uh, hello, Desantere. How are you doing today? I am doing greatly fine. And today. what is your question for us today? Uh, my question, uh, I, I got to give you a shout out first. Uh, it's a great show. It, it, will, it sounds, it look like it's going to be a great show. Oh, thank my, you. Thank you. I, I've been listening about like five minutes already. Um, <sighs> you missed and, the whole show. <laughs> uh, you got to get in I, sooner the next time. No, I, I was between. I was, uh, I'm working from home today, so I got some projects that I need to get done. But uh, my question to you guys, mm-hmm. uh, 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 speaking of uh, Congo, talking about the Congo, have you uh, thought about, uh, uh, about Mobutu Sesseko, who happened to have one of the greatest, not greatest, one of the greatest, if you want to say it, a speech back in 1990, in April um 24, I believe, 1990. It's been almost, it's been 25 years. If you guys uh, want to reflect back on that uh, so that American people would know, I know he was a dictator, but uh, he had some of the stuff that's happening right in the Congo. Mm-hmm. And then back in the days, 1973, Mobutu had uh, organized one of the most uh, 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 brilliant fight between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. And you can just uh, for a few minutes elaborate on that so that our American people will know about Mobutu and will know about uh, what happened uh, back in 1990. Uh, and I want to listen to you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for calling in. 
So we also have uh, Maggie on the line at the moment. Maggie, you you live. Yes, thank you. Peace and blessings to all of you. Hi, Maggie. Thank you for calling. You're welcome. And I do want to share that the uh, Negro people, which I like to call us because everybody is taking African-American. And so thank you for we, correcting us. Yes, but we are the historic Negro people of America. Okay. And we have supported everybody's liberation, you know, um, especially uh, South Africa, you know. And I want to ask you this, though, because um, I think one of the things we can all do is read more about the land uh, before it was even called Africa because of a European person, right? Mm -hmm. And we can get to know people, and I think all people need to get to know people. And also the wonderful uh, Bonobo that you have in uh, the Congo. Do you still have them, the Bonobo? Oh, you're speaking of the, the monkey who only exists in Africa, who's actually the closest descendant? Yes, Is that what you're talking about to humans? Yes. Yes, we still what? do have them. We still do have them. We actually have a lot of exotic animals uh, coming from Africa, especially the Congo. We also have uh, one that's called Okapi. It's, um, it's a quite an interesting animal. If you have a chance, maybe you can Google it and see the pictures. It's not something you've ever seen before. I know if I ever came across one, I'll probably start running to <laughs> wherever okay. I came from. But it's a, they, 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 yes, the Bonobo is still there. All right. But the Bonobo are so important because mm -hmm. they are matriarchal. Mm -hmm. And they have no war fighting among them like the head bull. And the scientists here in America, it blew their minds, well, I guess all over Europe as well, to find out that there are apes or primates who don't have this dominance, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think uh, that should be promoted as an uh, insight because they feel like it gave us a choice. You understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. We had a choice for peace, and this is shown to us in nature, so I love that about the Congo. <laughs> well, hopefully this show will have an opportunity on other shows to talk more, because, um, you know, as we continue with these shows, we're going to discuss different aspects of the Congo. We'll talk about the animals, we'll talk about the music, we'll talk about the food, and um, for now, we're going to try to get another caller coming in by the name of Biko. If, and, uh, to you all. and thank you for calling in. You're welcome. Uh, yes, hello, Biko. Yes. Hi, how are you doing today? Thank you for calling Congo Live. Hey, um, thank you all so much for uh, inviting me to this uh, special and historical event. And uh, I'm calling from uh, Jacksonville, Florida. And I'm also, um, I'm a regional from Congo, Lubumbashi. Ah, Mbote, Mbote. And Mbote is uh, basically in Lingala. It means hello. Yeah, Mbote. Nazabia, Nazabia. Uh, so go ahead, we're here. Uh, what is your question for us today? Yes, um, my question is uh, today is um, how are the are the youth uh, being um, like uh, politically educated? Because uh, uh, you know I just been um, you know growing up there, I wasn't well known of what was going on politically of, uh, of what was going on in, on uh, on Lubumbashi, especially in school. And in school, we were taught we were taught that Belgium was uh, was a great country. Uh, king Leopold was a great king that came to the Congo and gave us civilization, which to today is still existing. Like a lot of of my older the older generation still believe it to today. Which you know later on, I came to the United States, I learned that King Leopold was a terrible was a terrible king who murdered a lot a lot of 
a lot, a lot of Congolese, and which that information is being kept away from from the educational system in the Congo, which uh, which that's what I was kind of skeptical about that. Like, why are those not being taught in the Congo schools? I, I mean, I think uh, it's an important question to ask, but in general, before we can talk about what's being taught in the educational system in the Congo, we have to create an ed- educational institutions in the Congo for those things to be taught. So um, just in general, um, I think it's important that we support these movements that are happening in the Congo, because when we can get our true independence and we can really create the change that we want, then we can create these institutions and direct and guide the way the education system is taught so we can learn about people like Impavita and we can learn about the bonobos and whatever way they may have been um, have influenced the Congo as a whole. But um, thank you for calling, and we're going to take our next caller by the name of Diane, and this is going to be our last caller. Hello. Hi, Diane. How are you doing today? I'm fine. I'm, I'm fine. I just caught your show today. Is this the first time you're on? Yes. Yes. Okay. I caught it when you first came on. <laughs> thank but you. You had a question. You asked, "Why don't we unite mm-hmm. African Americans in Africa?" A lot, and some of the people, some, is not all, because I have met a, a lot of people from the continent, and they're very sweet, and they understand our problems and stuff. But we have been brainwashed here, and you all have brainwashed there, because a lot of them say that we don't want nothing here. I have heard people say that actually here in, in Baltimore and say that we are lazy and everything. It's not that we are lazy. It's a lot of stuff that we don't even know. We are here in Baltimore about business, how to start business, because they keep it from us. And the people that do know, the African Americans that do know that live here, don't like to share how to start a business. So we don't know the things that a lot of Africans know, and they come and they set up business and stuff. We don't know it. We were born right here in America. And as you know, it's a shame to say that, but there's a lot of stuff that is hitting in plain sight, as you may say, you know. But I have Excuse always me for interrupting, wanted, but the early... Um, I, I have always wanted to go to Africa. Mm-hmm. And you definitely should go. It's a beautiful and place. I, I have told my children that I work with, I work with children with um, special... Um, they have IEP at school in Baltimore County. And the little boy said, well, Miss Diane, you shouldn't go there because those people are poor and, and they're starving. I said, stop believing what you see on television. I said, because it's not. I said, Africa is very rich and he's an African-American little boy. And he said, because his, his church people said that those people are poor and we shouldn't go over there. I said, that's not true. He said, because he had asked me, was I going with him to the ninth grade? And I told him, no, I'll be retired by the time he get in the ninth grade. I'll be traveling around in Africa. He said, well, why do you want to go there? You know, so I had to explain to him, you know. And um, I think it's, we can really connect on a level of sharing ideas because the same thing has happened to us here with police brutality is happening on the continent of Africa. Without, without Thank you, Diane. I think uh, Dr. Sion had uh, a response to your comment. Okay. Yes, I was going to... One of the incidents that happened while I was in the Congo reminded me that in Africa, African people were taught in the school systems by Europeans. Uh, they were taught the, they were taught incorrectly. And so um, I heard uh, Mr... Uh, the the head of Kenya uh, at one time um, said that he had been taught about snow and there's never he'd never seen snow but he had to learn about snow when he was in school and he learned about pygmies and little people when he was in school he said he came to the Congo looking for little people in the Congo this was at a meeting of uh, independent African nations uh, and and nations moving toward independence in Africa. And uh, he said he'd heard about the little people in Africa, 
and he got there and he found people of normal size and he saw all those tall buildings and he realized that um, he had learned the wrong thing about the Congo when mm. he was in school. So it just goes to show you what he said mirrored what I had been hearing about Africa in school as well uh, because the school system, they call it history for a reason. It is his story. It is not our story. And we're not going to hear our story until we begin to study, get, get our degrees, and tell our story ourselves. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's a good point that you make. And um, on, on that note, we're going to take a short break. Uh, we'll be playing another song from the Congo, bringing us back to now, uh, the 2015. And this is a really hot song right now in the Congolese charts, and I'm sure a lot of Congolese are going to appreciate this song. for introducing me to that song. <laughs> you should not thank Puka, you should thank me. Like, Didn't we just had a you debate told me about the context song? of the song, but he introduced me to the dance to the song. Oh. <laughs> so the discussion we're having, we've been preparing for this show for a while now, and we were debating <laughs> if we're going to play this song uh, because I love the song, and my co-host, Patricia, felt that the song was vulgar. Well, I, I, the thing is, the song, I love listening to the song. When you're at a party, this is the song you want to play. But 
when he suggested to play the song, I looked at the video and I was like, you know, we can't, we can't play this song. This doesn't make any sense. And then uh, he went and did what he always does best, did his research and came back with a context, like basically broke down the song for me. And maybe you can tell the, the listeners of why Mascara is important to the yes. society in Congo. And I think it's perfect with uh, Dr. Sion around the importance of culture and music in our revolution, especially in Brazil, seeing how Capoeira helped our Afro-Brazilians in their liberation there, um, and also looking at Congolese music as a tool for liberation. What's interesting about this song, uh, song Dr. Sian, is that um, the artist has a music video for this song, mm -hmm. and I was very surprised to note that uh, usually Congolese artists will wear a Ralph Lauren, will wear Versace, no, the latest, nicest clothing. Yes. But this artist had many of his dancers uh, wearing African clothes, uh, African fabric attires in the song. And I said, something is interesting about this artist. His name is Fabregas. And the song is called Mascara, you know, which is the same word in English, uh, yeah. makeup. Yes. And uh, the song speaks about, uh, I know you, you know, you told Lingala and you speak Lingala. As for our listener, the song talks about um, when a man goes to the club and a woman has put on makeup and she doesn't look as what she looks like normally. And then uh, speaks about um, um, people who may have uh, relations with women through that context. Mm. And then the woman dies she leaves a will and in the will she put the names of all the men she had the relations with mm. and now everyone is afraid so i saw that song more from the context of awareness of uh, sexually transmitted disease yeah. which is very rare in music in general right now where is the they will uh sing songs that denigrate women or you no. Know, destroy pretty much our culture and i said this young artist is into something else and that's why i was very proud after making my point uh to my cause this is the song we should play and explain the context and i wanted to know from your experience now now looking at hip-hop even in the united states from the 60s um the music in the 60s hip hip-hop we start getting traction in the 80s and the hip-hop culture and the music in the united states and the music in the congo uh what what knowledge and wisdom can you share with our listeners uh and us as we look at music as a tool for change well excuse me when i look at the um the music of the congo i know that it influenced music all over the continent and all over the world uh, during a particular time, and some of the West Indian move, uh, music as well, like uh, uh, the music of, of um, oh, oh, I'm trying to, my memory is not serving me well right now, but the music of the West Indies and uh, Bob Marley, for example, um, it has those themes of independence and uh, liberation in them. Um, and as I said, and there's a link between uh, the music of, of um, uh, of the of the West Indies and and they came and went they went over to the Congo and they went over to Africa and, and got involved in the music of Africa as well. With hip hop is something similar. Uh, when hip hop came along, Africans began to be influenced by hip hop, and you you find hip hop not just in Africa but all over the world in every country where there is um, struggle. You will find the music of hip hop and the messages of 
uh, fighting for independence and struggling for independence. Uh, so um, I think music is a thing that links us. It's something that links people together, uh, and it reminds us of Uhuru. We used to say that in the, in the days of the movement, Uhuru, Uhuru, Sasa, freedom, freedom now. And that became a, a, by, a byword in the, uh, in the movement of the, of the 60s. And I think uh, it's time for us to get to those bywords again, because you can't have independence uh, and still be subject to colonialism, still be subject Absolutely. to, uh, to um, having your products, uh, not having any control of the products, not having the products that are, are uh, created or produced in your country uh, be able to help the people of the country. They don't help toward education. They, don't, uh, they aren't used for, uh, for health uh, in, the, in the country where you are. You can't use them for economic development, for food. Uh, those things are still lacking in, in the countries of Africa and even here in our, in our African-American communities because we do not control the means of production. And thank you so much for calling us today, Dr. Yvonne Sion, and thank you. And we look forward to having you again on the show to give us more and educate us more about what you've taken from the Congo. And for our listeners, make sure you go on our Facebook page and like us on Congo Live. And you go on our website at congolive.org and you follow us and give us some of your feedbacks and leave comments so we can answer some of your questions on our next show next Saturday from 2 to 3 o'clock here on Eastern Standard Time. And what a wonderful way to end the show with uh, Lokwa Kanza. The song is called Nakozonga, which means I will, will return. return. <laughs> and we look forward to all of our listeners to come home. And home vive la Congo. <laughs> Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. WOLB Baltimore, a Radio 1 station where information is power. The views and opinions